inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. This is still Jesus talking. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, and he said this is the ruler, oh great, all these I have kept from my youth. All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, Well, see, we've left our homes and we followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. A really challenging portion of scripture tonight. Will you guys pray with me and for the sermon? Dear Heavenly Father, um, I was reminded today on campus and just in other avenues that um, your gospel looks strange to some people, and it used to look strange to me too, but now that you've revealed yourself to myself and a lot of other people in the room tonight, it's the only thing in this world that makes sense. So I pray tonight as we study um, your servant's Luke, his writing, as we study it, God, that you'll make the words come alive to us, that conviction will be brought, and that anything you want people to hear will fall on soft, open hearts, and anything else goes flat to the floor. God, we love you. We praise you. We're thankful for your son and waited in the cross. In his name I pray. And everybody said, amen. So I have a legitimate question. I do kind of want some dialogue in this. Um, has anybody in the room tonight ever met somebody legitimately famous and like got to shake their hand or got an uh, autograph or anything? Raise your hands. Really? That's it? Okay. All right. So who's that back there? Is that Mason? All right, who, who is it that you met? Oh, what do you mean I wouldn't know him? What's that supposed to mean? <laughs> I'm country. <laughs> no, I'm not. Okay, Aaron Watson. Did you get to talk to him or anything? What did you, you guys talk about? Cool, awesome. All right, Zeke, who have you met? I just met Cassidy Pope last week. Oh, yeah, yeah, a fellow musician. Cassidy Pope is who he met. Um, and then did you, did you guys talk about anything? What did you guys talk about? How the tour was going? Did you ask her any questions musically or anything like that? Okay. Jamin, who have you met? Tim, shut up, really? Tim Tebow? Really? Why have you never told me that? What did you guys talk about? He was like in a hurry, so I just told him, like, I respect what you do. Dang. Well, we got Jesus in the room tonight. I didn't know there was a guy who had met Tim Tebow. That's exciting. That's amazing. That is so cool. I'm, I'm stoked. I don't know if I can preach now. Usually when we get the opportunity to be around human greatness, even if, they're that, even if they're really not that famous, if they're just like great in what they do, we really want to take advantage of those opportunities. We want to like absorb as much from those people as we can get. So we're just, we're in that tiny situation. We know we're probably never going to have it again. We want to ask some good questions or we want to get or give some good encouragement to these people that have really made impacts in our lives. Um, 
One of our interns here at ASC, Nick, I don't know where he's at right now. Oh, there he is. Good. I'm glad you raised your hand. He does this with our main preaching minister, Charlton. He, this, this kid loves our pastor here at this church. Anytime we're in the room with, with Charlton and there's like a, a half second of dead space, Nick will just jump out at Charlton with the most deep, theological, spiritual, controversial questions you can ever imagine. Like he has a little notepad in his pocket. He just wants to absorb everything that he can from Charlton. And, and and, and Charlton's not that famous, but I mean, yeah, like his, his, the admiration that Nick has for him and, and what he knows about the word of God, like I, I do respect that. I do respect that. The rich ruler in this story, he does the same exact thing with Jesus. Um, so, so he's finally in this, this circle with one of the most famous teachers of the time, right? Jesus' message and the things he's teaching, they're starting to take over the world. He's really changing things. And so the rich ruler, he finally gets around Jesus, and he says, uh, and he asks, him, he asks him a question. Now, the question that was asked is a question that's asked in faith circles and in different religions throughout the world. It's being asked a million times tonight. The rich ruler asks, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And quickly, right after reading what Jesus says, we realize that asking questions is easier than applying the tough questions that we might receive. Asking questions is easier than applying the tough answers that we might receive. See, our generation, man, we love to ask questions. We are really good at asking questions. We, que- we question the current state of the world. We question tradition. We'll even question authority if we don't think that they're driving us in the same direction that we need to be going. We're a free-thinking generation. Where we struggle, where we struggle is with application. G.K. Chesterton said this, Merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of an open mind as opening of the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. To shut it again on something solid. So we are the open-minded generation, but what are we going to do when we find truth, when we find something to hold on to? I had this friend back when I was an undergrad. His name was Anthony. Anthony played football for the Aggies, and Anthony was the biggest, most yoked dude I have ever met in my life. He had a passion for football, but he had a bigger passion for lifting weights and bodybuilding too. And so uh, we'd always joke with Anthony. Um, we'd be like, man, like, how do I get big like you? Like, how do I, how do I get that body? I mean, you guys, he was so big. I was there the day um, he, got, he benched 405 pounds on bench press. If you, if you don't lift weights, just know that's a lot. And that I couldn't spot him by myself. We had like four or five of us spotting him, and he got it. And he since got stronger. And that's a lot of weight. This man was yoked. And so I'd ask him, I said, Anthony, how do I get big like you? And he would, he would always be humble. He'd play it off. He's like, I'm not big or just buy a Bowflex or something stupid like that. But Anthony was, Anthony was yoked, and so I pressed him hard enough. I pressed him hard enough to where one day he said, Matt, are you really serious? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So the next day I'm at my gym working out and Anthony comes to my gym. He switches gym memberships just to come to my gym and work out with me. And I had a new workout partner. And the first workout we did was two hours long. Right after that, we had to go eat. And that doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you're a bodybuilder, weightlifter, eating is a huge deal. It's not as fun as it sounds. Like we had to eat a lot. And so what I was met with, my, my question was, how do I get big? And I was met with a really, really hard answer that said, two-hour-a-day workout, six days a week, 3,000-calorie clean eating diet. 
Needless to say, since Anthony moved away, I don't exactly keep to that regimen. But I was met with a really, really hard answer. And so was the rich young ruler. First, Jesus reminds him, he says, look, he says, remember the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't kill, honor your father and mother, etc., etc." So the young man, he's like, great. He's like, I got this. He says, I've been doing those things since I was a youth. And then Jesus jumps to the hard part. He says, one thing you still lack, sell all your goods and distribute them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Boom. The hard part. The hard part. See, that wasn't the first time in Scripture, though, that Jesus asked somebody to do something that looks extremely hard. You guys know some of the other controversial, I can't talk tonight, controversial? Okay. You guys know some of the other scriptures that are really tough. Gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, give all you have to the poor. There was one time when Jesus was asking a man to come follow him, and the man says, well, my dad just died. Let me bury him first, and then I'll come follow you. And Jesus said, he said, no. He said, let the dead bury the dead. You come and follow me right now. Sounds extreme, right? It sounds wild. It sounds like these commandments that we can't keep. But the thing about these really extreme things that Jesus said is we have to view Scripture a little bit differently. Jesus wasn't making these new commandments that like all of us Christians should be walking around with no arms because we're sinners and all this stuff. Jesus wasn't saying thou shalt cut off your hand or thou shalt sell all your stuff. Jesus was giving these specific examples, talking to these specific idols in these people's lives. The rich young ruler had a problem with possessions. He needed to sell his possessions. So meaning this, Jesus knows everyone's idols. Jesus knows everyone's idols. He knows perfectly what is competing in your heart and mind tonight for affections with him. What is competing with him for affections in your heart? Jesus knows that. He looks every single one of us in the face tonight. And he sees straight to our heart. And he sees straight to what is, is arguing for affection, is, is wrestling for affection in our heart. And so Jesus is interested in stripping away everything, and I mean everything that gets in the way between us and him. Unfortunately, we live in a current culture of American Christianity where we're told, you know, it's, it's, it's not that big a deal if Jesus is number one. As long as you prioritize him pretty high, that'll be enough. As long as he's like kind of around your family or your friend group, that'll be good. Or as long as he's there um, behind your career, like that's high enough, that's, that's good. The unfortunate thing is that's not the gospel at all. And that's not what Jesus came to preach about himself or about following him. He's interested in stripping things away and getting things back to the basics of who we are and what we believe. And it's really a great idea until we have to try it. Until we have to try it. Everything around us tells us, this consumeristic culture tells us that we'll be more satisfied the more stuff we accumulate. The better the car, the better the house, the better the neighborhood, that'll, that'll make us, more, that'll make us uh, more fulfilled. But the problem is, is that, that that's not the case. So I want to show you guys a short clip right now. It's from a documentary. Now, this is not a Christian documentary, but I do believe that the ideas in this documentary, the ideas behind this movement that's kind of happening in America right now, is something that really speaks to how Jesus would want us to do things. So check out this short clip. We spend so much time on the hunt, but nothing ever quite does it for us. And... We get so wrapped up in the hunt 
that it kind of makes us miserable. Black Friday shopping mania is still playing out tonight at malls across America. High hopes of saving some big bucks on those holiday gifts. In some cases, it did turn violent. We've, as a culture, have lost our minds. There's no question that what it means to have achieved the American dream has increased tremendously in material terms. This is not something that just happened yesterday. This is something that has been sold to us over the past hundred years by those that want to make a whole lot of money. Now that's what I call a good-looking car. You have this thing that you were obsessed about, but then the new version comes out, and now you no longer care about the one you have. In fact, the one you have is a source of dissatisfaction. People are beginning to recognize that they have maybe been tricked. There is no out until you become aware. You're not going to get happier by consuming more. Ready? I was born ready. There's nothing wrong with consumption. The problem is compulsory consumption. We're tired of it. We're tired of acquiring things because that's what we're supposed to do. When I heard about minimalism, it wasn't about just getting rid of my stuff. It was about taking control of my life and stop being told what to do and actually deciding what I wanted to do. When I first started reducing the number of things in my life, I found out that I had 51 things in the entire world. We've probably sold or donated at least 90% of our stuff. As I started to move that stuff out, I was able to finally realize what I had sacrificed. I don't know what the most common three words are in American homes. I don't know if it's, I love you, or if it's, I want that. This same thing that's not making us happy is also causing the degradation of our habitat. We're going to have to give up a lot. The secret is that a lot of that we're not actually going to miss. What I found with minimalism is it's a way of saying, let's stop the madness. When you recognize that this life is yours, and that it is your one and only, and when that seeps directly in your bones, and you recognize that this is it, everything changes. So that's a trailer for a film called Minimalism, um, a documentary about the important things. So you can watch it online if you're interested. Again, it's not a Christian film, but it has some really great principles I'm sure Jesus would agree with. Here's a definition that the minimalists say is a, is a good definition for what minimalism is. Minimalism is a lifestyle that helps people question what things add value to their lives. By clearing the clutter from life's paths, we can all make room for the most important aspects of life health, relationships, passion, growth, and contribution. Now, like I said, it's not a Christian film. So when they get to this point of what the most important aspects in life, that's where the campus minister and the guys who made this film were going to disagree a little bit. What I think is most important versus these things are good, but, but health, relationships, passion, of course, I think a relationship with the Lord is the most important thing. But in getting to that point, in stripping away everything that is keeping us from that true, that true self that we are, Jesus would really hop on board with this. Jesus would really hop on board with this. Now, none of us want to admit, none of us want to admit some of the problems, addictions we might have. None, none of us want to admit the smartphone addiction that I'm sure 95% of us have, me included. None of us want to admit or, or start to evaluate um, our weakened culture. 
what, what we do on weekends. None of us want to admit that this weekend in particular, Hall- Halloween weekend, I used to be an undergrad too. It's going to be a real, what the heck? The Holy Spirit is in this place tonight. None of us want to admit how hard this weekend is going to be for a Jesus follower. It's going to be a tough weekend. It's going to be a tough weekend. None of us want to really honestly soul search and look at our priorities and say what is really at the top. We don't really want to look at what we spend our time and our money in and decide what is at the top. We don't want to do that. But all of us, or at least a lot of us in the room would say, we still want our relationship with the Lord to be the best that it can possibly be. We still want that to be the number one thing. We say that. There was a man in the Bible who said that as well. His name was King Solomon. Solomon, um, as you might have known, he wrote the book of Proverbs, and he wrote the book of Song of Solomon as well. But he also, I'm just going to keep preaching. Y'all just stay focused. I'm going to keep preaching. Um, Solomon wrote this book called Ecclesiastes. Now, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, I'm going to find the, I'm going to find the purpose of life. I'm going to find the meaning in life. You can just cut them. It's okay. Yeah, just do that. Cut them, and then I'm going to turn on these lights back here. And in three minutes, they'll be warmed up, and we'll be good to go. <laughs> Not a big deal. So Solomon, Solomon was really interested in finding out what the meaning of life was. That's just what he was, that's what he was about. So he wrote this book, Ecclesiastes, where he was going to go and try and find it. He was going to go and try and find it. So, so he does everything, absent of God, to find the meaning of, God, uh, meaning of life. He leaves God out of it, and he writes his experiences in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read this. It's a little bit long, but stay with me till the end. It's when it gets good. This is Solomon writing about his search for meaning. Laughter, I said, it's madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guided me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of life. So here he's saying, I'm going to figure this out. What is the meaning of life? I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone ever before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harm as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. Now, if I lost you to this point, lock in on these last two verses. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, and I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all of my labor, and yet this was the reward for all my toil. Verse 11, this is where it all ties together. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and all that I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Nothing was gained under the sun. Y'all, this is truly a story straight from the Bible of a man that we all read as Proverbs and we're like, oh, he was such a great man of God. Here's a man who literally said, I went buck wild. I got drunk. I, I, uh, I, I, I reserved concubines. So this means he had a bunch of sex. I stacked up my cash. I built these big old houses. I did that. I did all these things, and he did all these things without God, and what does it say in the last verse? He says, everything was meaningless, nothing was gained. Everything was meaningless, nothing was gained. 
Now, I don't know what degree plan you're on. I don't know what career path you're on. By prompt, I'm pretty sure none of us in the room are going to ever be as powerful as Solomon was. You saw he was one of the richest to ever walk this earth. I'm not sure we'll, any of us will ever be able to say that. And he had all of the world's pleasures at his fingertips. And yet it wasn't enough. This is a true story. And this, just like this, the, the theory of minimalism, it's designed to point us to something greater. It's designed to point us to something greater. I've used this quote a few times in my sermons before, but it's so good I'm shamelessly doing it again. C.S. Lewis said this. <laughs> Y'all can't see anything. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. I'm going to read it again. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You want to hear how Solomon's story in Ecclesiastes ends? After 12 chapters of trying to fill himself with anything and everything but God, it says this, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Solomon figured it out. Hundreds of years later, Jesus backed it up. Thousands of years later, the question is, remains for us, will we? Will we? When we read about Jesus' teaching, we think that everything is to benefit the poor, right? We read this and we're just like, yeah, well, sure, the poor is going to get all my stuff, but then I'm going to be the one suffering. I'm going to be the one that doesn't have any stuff anymore. We just have to view Scripture a little bit differently. The benefits weren't, for, the benefits weren't just for the people who are going to get the stuff. The benefits in all of Jesus' teachings were for those who he asked to follow him, for us, we are the beneficiaries of these really hard things that Jesus asks us. And what is our reward? Comfort, peace, joy, understanding, sure, eternal life, uh, love, whatever it is. These are our rewards. And it's better than anything that this life has to offer. I promise. And listen, just like the guy in the minimalism video said, um, I don't want you to leave here thinking consumption is bad. Consumption is, in and of itself is not bad. It's not sinful to have stuff. It's not. When it becomes a problem, when it becomes wrong, is when it's compulsive consumption. The only thing we should be compulsory consumers of is Jesus. It's the only thing on that level of consumption that will make sense and that will satisfy our lives. It's the only thing that will make sense at that level. But this whole conversation started, this whole entire conversation started with a question from a well-to-do man, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer was hard, and it did answer about eternity, but it also answered about today. It also answered about the here and now. I'll read it again. Jesus, I say to you, or truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Um, the worship team, you guys can start making your way back up here. I'm going to close with this. Look, I, I know looking around the room tonight that there's a lot of questions. A lot of questions. We all, come, we all come in here with them. Questions about God, questions about eternity, questions about our life. Where are we going to end up? Who are we going to end up marrying? Where are we going to end up living? What are we going to end up doing? I know we all come in here with these, with these questions. 
at the end of the day, the Bible is an amazing guide, but for every single question you have in your life, there won't be a direct biblical command to answer those questions. The issue will become, the issue will become this. At the end of the day, the question will always be, do you want Christ above all? Do you want to follow him more than anything else in this world? Because yes, it, it will affect eternity. It will affect our eternity. But the truth that, bring, that Jesus tells us is that it affects the here and now. Right here, today, it affects us right now. And so the question becomes for us is all we have to do is be ready to answer yes when Jesus says, come follow me. We all pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for tonight. I'm thankful for this group and this room and this place that we have to worship you. God, even when lights don't work and when the gym is hot, I'm still grateful for this group because they want to know you. And I want to know you better tonight too, God. So I pray for every single person in this room as, as we talk about hope and eternity and, and life here on earth that this will, be a, this will be a time where we can ask questions. But at the end of the day, that we'll be bold enough to answer the call that says to come follow you and that that will be enough for us in this life and in the age to come. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We're thankful for what you've done on the cross. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.